Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got this amazing book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, How to Choose and Execute the Right Approach. And I've got Martin Reeves with me today. Martin, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Now, you've got two other authors here, so let's talk about them a little bit and uh, what they did for the book, and then we'll just jump right into the book. Right, so this was a multi-year project for the three of us. Um, So I'm Martin Reeves. I lead uh, BCG's Henderson Institute, which is our think tank for new approaches to strategy and business. And um, my co-authors are Kundit Harness, who until recently was the leader of our strategy practice, and he's based in Europe. So he contributed a a European perspective and many of the examples uh, in the book. And then we have um, Jan Mejaya Sinha, um, who is chairman of uh, BCG in Asia. And obviously, va- Asia is a very important part of the global economy and strategy today. Um, so uh, his contribution was uh, a lot around the, uh, the, the fast-growing Asian market dimension to the, uh, to the book. Cool. Now, let's jump right into the book. You know, I, I get a lot of books across my table, and this one is a beauty, as they say. Really, really nicely done. Uh, lots of diagrams and a ton of information in it. But to start off, let's talk about an overused word that nobody understands anymore, and that is the word strategy. So, to help us be, you know, focus and understand what the book's about, Martin, and before we and and I know you go into a section where there, there's the five types of strategy, but the word itself, what does strategy mean? Um, well, I'm a, a practitioner. I um, I'm a consultant to practitioners primarily, and that's what my company does. So I, I adopt a very um, practical uh, definition, which is strategy is whatever thoughts and actions bias towards favorable business outcomes, usually favorable competitive outcomes, but let me use the broader idea of favorable business outcomes. So really the big question of the book is, does the old stuff still work? Uh, and if not, what, what, is, what is the new stuff? Um, so that's my very simple definition of strategy, and that's what the book is about. Let's talk about the old stuff then. What, what's the difference between old strategy and new strategy? Well, I think uh, strategy, uh, of course, uh, generally speaking, is a very old art. We have military strategy going back thousands of years. Um, but business strategy, people often don't realize what a young discipline it is. It, it, it grew up in the late 1950s, early 1960s on the East Coast of America and pretty quickly became uh, very uh, important in business. Most businesses pretty quickly had a, a strategy department or corporate planning department. And um, the key, the key notions of, of cl- what I call classical strategy, the classical, the strategy from that period, are the notions that scale uh, leads to advantage. The idea that it's all about staking out uh, advantage positions, and the idea that you can um, figure out a strategy through a very uh, analytical process, and that uh, corporate planning um, is is very important. So when we say the word strategy, it may conjure up images of analysts in corporate planning departments. So that's certainly one way of doing strategy. Uh, the question the, the book looks at essentially is: uh, is that still valid? And if not, you know, what is a, a better way under the modern circumstances of business? 
the word tactical comes up too in in uh, in conversations of business, and there is a fundamental difference between tactics and st- strategy. Uh, which comes first, strategy and then tactics, or is it tactics need a strategy? Well, the language here is um, is is part of the challenge to be clear about these sorts of words and um, the. Words like um, strategy, implementation, uh, tactics, um, organization, um, maybe in today's conversation we'll, uh, we'll see that actually the relationship between these words and the meaning of those words depends upon the particular approach to strategy that's relevant under the circumstances. So if I were to reduce the book to a single phrase, the key idea is basically that the circumstances of business are now so diverse that one size does not fit all. In other words, we need not just different strategies, we always needed different strategies for situations, but we need different approaches as to how to think about strategy and implementation uh, for different for, for different situations. That's what the entire book is about. Um, so let me answer your question about tactics and strategy and implementation in the context of these specific uh, approaches. Let's look at the strategy of consuming this book because, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have a ton of time. This is an important book for them to read. After they've read the introduction, because usually that's uh, a good place to start, can they skip around in the book or should they kind of read the book from cover to cover because it it builds? Well, um, you ask a very strategic question, actually, uh, uh, to the writer of the book um, in the sense that that's something we thought a lot about. because we know that um, senior executives don't have a lot of time to read books. Um, we know that um, the printed word is um, you know, not the medium for the, um, the generation of, 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 of short attention spans. And we also have some research that says that uh, intellectual understanding of the ideas in the book is not enough. You've sort of somehow got to develop a muscle memory. Um, so we did a bunch of things um, around communication strategy. So firstly, we made the, the first chapter um, a summary um, of the uh, of, of the whole book. So once you've got the first chapter, you will indeed have the keywords and concepts to then jump around. Um, secondly, and this this was a bit of an experiment for my company. We actually um, have a companion app. Um, so if you go to the um, the iTunes Store and and look at one word, um, strategy needs strategy. You'll find that there is an app, and the idea of the app is that it's a game that forces you through the actions within the game to experience and develop a muscle memory for the concepts and then back into theory. So it's a, if you like, it's the book in reverse. It starts with, uh, with, with muscle memory and action and then backs into theory. And then we also made a, um, a three-minute video that you can also find online that uh, attempts to nail the, the central concept to get that clear, uh, this idea of contingent strategy. Your approach to strategy and implementation depends upon the circumstances um, so that we'd have the maximum clarity because the language is a little bit treacherous there as your, your first question uh, revealed. <laughs> you know what? That's pretty damn impressive. You know, uh, many, many, well, basically I would say 99.9% of books have come out and some of them have a video. None of them have had a support app for the book. So it looks to me like you guys are pretty cutting edge when it comes to your strategy. So you mentioned that you did some research, you found out what was going on, you, you know, you obviously ask a bunch of people uh, a pile of questions. Um, what made you decide that you really need an app other than we need this muscle memory thing? I mean, because you could have kind of done muscle memory inside the book with exercises with many, many people do that. Do you feel that the communication 
uh, platform these days has to almost be uh, interactive in in the sense that a book itself isn't a good enough strategy anymore? Or was it kind of like, hey, what the heck, let's try this out, see what happens, and then we're going to learn something? Um, well, it's, it's a couple of things, actually. The first thing is that, um, you know, just the uh, limited time available for CEOs to read books. And our book was aimed at the C-suite. Um, so that was uh, that was one consideration. And the second consideration was we actually had some specific research um, on 150 multinational companies that said that um, there are three reasons why companies may find it hard in practice to embrace uh, the ideas in, in, in the book. One of them is that they may misperceive their environment. And we found some companies that misperceive their environment. For example, they might judge their environment to be stable, that maybe it once was, but it, actually it's highly unpredictable. You know, the second reason is that they uh, misdeclare the, 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 the wrong strategy. Um, so they correctly understand their environment, but they may believe that they need, um, for instance, what we call an adaptive strategy, even though the environment is a classical environment. Um, there was, we found some companies that did that. Um, but actually, the overwhelmingly, uh, the biggest disconnect was companies that understood their environment, declared the right approach to strategy in that environment, but then somehow failed to have their organizations embrace the right behaviors to do that. So in other words, the uh, corporate planning departments would carry on doing what they'd been doing for years, which is long cycle, deliberative, analytical planning, uh, in spite of the fact that in many situations that uh, you know that was not the uh, the optimal approach. So that said that there was some gap between understanding and action. So that was yet another reason for saying, well, let's have some sort of medium, in this case a game, that actually leads with action and then backs into uh, uh, you know analysis and um, uh, and theory as opposed to the the other way around. And the last reason was that. The book is based on about 35,000 companies and their performance over a 65-year period. It's based on some uh, uh, some simulations. It's based on an in-depth survey, 150 multinationals, and is a lot of case studies. Uh, but nevertheless, we wanted some medium for updating our understanding by actually collecting behavioral data from companies um, um, with their consent, of course. Uh, and that's where the app is going. It's it's. Uh, Right now, it's the first generation app, and, and pretty soon we're going to come out with a new version, um, which is actually suitable for use in a sort of seminar setting, and it aims to capture strategic behavior, strategic choice behavior, uh, to codify it, and then um, you know play it back to the uh, play it back to the participants. So for all of those reasons, we launched this experiment as uh, as a, to, to produce a gaming app as as a complement to the book. Hmm. That's a brilliant strategy. And speaking of that. You mentioned that there are five strategies. Um, can we just touch on those a little bit? And then I would like you to choose your favorite strategy, which is a totally unfair question. Um, sure, let's let's do that. So at the heart of the book is the idea that, um, you know, people say that all sorts of things have changed about business. They say that the world is less predictable. It's faster moving. It's more dominated by technology. Um, and all of these things are true. But from a strategic perspective, what we found is that the most important uh, change in business since the founding of the discipline of uh, business strategy in the early 1960s is that we're dealing with more diverse and more dynamic environments. What does that mean? Um, well, there are three key variables here. Um, the first one is is the question, can we plan it? Um, in other words, how predictable is the environment? And so the truth is that many environments are less predictable, 
but some are very stable. So in this dimension, we have an increased diversity of environments. The second variable we look at is, can you shape it? If you can shape an environment, you should. And of course, many environments are now shapeable through new technologies. But many are given. The structure is essentially given and has uh, you know, long precedented history and it's not shapeable. So again, we have a great diversity on this axis. And then the third variable is harshness. Um, there are many companies out there that have been through um, transformations, downsizings, rationalizations, and so on. Why? Because they face very harsh circumstances, sometimes as a result of some external shock, uh, like oil prices or a financial crisis, but often simply because they got out of touch with their competitive environments um, as they changed. This harshness variable focuses us on the question, am I strategizing for survival or am I strategizing for, uh, for long-term value? So, um, you put those three variables into a matrix that we call the strategy palette, and five completely different approaches to strategy pop out, which are appropriate under different circumstances. So the first one is is the classical strategy, and if I were to pick a slogan for that one, it would be be the biggest. Um, so this the, the strat classical strategy is for stable environments where scale is important, position is important, and we can actually construct plans. So the news here in the classical um, strategy zone is that it's not dead. There's still a whole bunch of industries out there that are stable and predictable uh, where you should be good at all of the classical disciplines. And we give the example in the book, for instance, of the confectionery industry um, that essentially grows at GDP and has very long-lived brands and is uh, eminently uh, uh, planable. Um, the second of, of five is the adaptive environment. And the slogan there would be, be the fastest. Um, so we need an adaptive strategy when the environment is very unpredictable and when planning is a very limited uh, utility. And what's the alternative to planning? Um, it's essentially to take a leaf from biology and to uh, conduct business through experimentation. In other words, um, the, algorithm, the algorithm becomes very select and then amplify, try things, see what works, and then scale the things that, that, that work. And we find this to be um, uh, an appropriate uh, approach to strategy in, uh, for instance, many technology industries that are so fast moving that they're very unpredictable and plans don't help a lot. The third of five is the, uh, the visionary strategy. A visionary strategy is essentially the strategy of entrepreneurs. This is not about participating in an industry structure. It's about creating uh, a new space. And the, the slogan here, if you like, to, to capture the essence of this would be, be the first. Um, so what this is about is um, it's about envisioning a possibility that doesn't currently exist, but you believe could exist or should exist, realizing that possibility and then scaling that possibility. It's a fundamentally different way of, of thinking about strategy. The fourth of five um, is, is called the shaping environment. Uh, the shaping environment or the shaping strategy is for those situations where a group of companies, an ecosystem of companies, collaboratively reshape an industry. So if you think about um, Alibaba, if you think about uh, Amazon, <clears throat> if you think about Red Hat, um, if you think about Li and Fung, uh, there's a bunch of companies out there that have orchestrated an ecosystem of many other companies to um, evolve and shape uh, a, a platform uh, and, and a whole uh, industry. And this can be remarkably successful 
uh, if done right. And the uh, so the approach here, the slogan would be be the orchestrator, be the orchestrator of a, of, of a new space. And the thinking here is really quite different from the other four styles we've discussed so far. This is about deploying influence, orchestrating the behavior of others, and co-evolving a collaborative ecosystem. It's a, much more to do with collaboration uh, than it is to do with competition. And then finally, um, the fifth style is is renewal, um, where the slogan would be um, be viable. It's about what companies should do uh, when their viability is threatened by a, mis a mismatch between the, the company's strategy and its environment. Um, and uh, this is about economization. Uh, companies in trouble, you know, cut costs, they cut back. Um, uh, but it's also about um, pivoting back to growth and innovation uh, because you can't cut your way to, uh, uh, to, to, to greatness. So the, the idea here would be economize, uh, pivot, and then uh, and then innovate and, and and grow. So stepping back, we have five approaches to strategy and imp and implementation uh, that are very very distinct, uh, and each one is appropriate uh, to a uh, to a to a to a different environment. You know, it, it, it's it's fascinating because you know I was listening to that, and as soon as you mentioned the company that that strategy relate to, that strategy became a lot clearer. What does a CEO or, or somebody that owns a company do to be able to step back from their company because, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees to discover what strategy they should use? I mean, is there a, a matrix? Is there a checklist? Or do they – it's better to have an outside person come in and say, well, I'm, you're kind of more into this direction or your industry is kind of going in this direction, so you should shift your strategy to match that new direction? Um, well, I think the the – the matrix I described, the strategy palette, which is the key uh, diagram for the book, um, has these three axes, um, which which relate to unpredictability, malleability, and harshness, three key variables of any strategic environment. Um, so basically, the way to um, the way to see what is appropriate for your business is to turn that into three questions. So the first question is, can we predict it? If we can predict it, let's plan. If we can't, uh, let's uh, let's experiment uh, or adapt. Um, the second question is, can we shape it? If we can shape it, let's let's have a shaping or a visionary strategy. Uh, if we can't, let's uh, let's have a classical or an adaptive strategy. So, can we shape it? The third question is, can we survive it? Is our viability, our short-term viability, threatened? In which case, we may need a uh, a renewal strategy. So that's the logical way of of, of seeing which. Um, uh, which strategy is 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 uh, is 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 good for you? Um, of course, one one can also do it by analogy. We give uh, case studies for each of these strategies in the book, and um, more intuitively, one can say, "Is my business like the business of these various companies that we uh, we quote in the book?" Um, now, the CEO of um, a large company has a couple of additional challenges. Um, the main one is that um, they may they probably are not just in one business. <clears throat> so in other words, the answer is not one of these things. It is a segmentation of their business. It's the idea that we should employ the right approach to strategy and implementation for each part of the business at the right time because these these change over time. And that's unfortunately uh, quite challenging. <laughs> uh, it involves what we call in the book ambidexterity. Ambidexterity, of course, um, um, 
means the ability to write with both hands. And it turns out that a, a small percentage, I think it's about 3% of uh, human beings can write fluently with both hands. And this is roughly the same percentage of companies that can employ uh, effectively different approaches to strategy in different parts of their business. Why? Um, because these, these approaches are quite different and in some cases um, involve um, almost contradictions. Um, so for example, a, a classical strategy may have a great deal of emphasis on uh, uniformity, efficiency, uh, discipline, whereas an adaptive strategy um, will involve a lot of um, delegation, empowerment, experimentation. Uh, certainly effectiveness is important, but efficiency is somewhat less important. In fact, if you're not failing enough, you probably are not experimenting and you probably won't succeed. So that's an additional challenge for large companies, which is to uh, apply the right approach to each uh, part of the business. Hmm. You know, Google, I guess, is probably the most famous one for, for having a, a perpetual um, adaptability. But in the book, you actually use uh, PepsiCo as the uh, ambidextrous or having an ambidextrous approach to their strategy. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because that's, that's fascinating. Yes, I wanted to certainly offer some tech examples um, you know, people want to hear, you know, what about Google? What about Apple? So you'll find those companies mentioned in the book. Um, but I also wanted some examples that were from the industrial sector, um, were long established companies, um, uh, so that it was a, a book that would be, uh, you know, applicable to, to all sectors. So, so, so focusing in on ambidexterity, actually, I think both uh, Google and um, Pepsi are great examples of ambidexterity. So recently, uh, Google um, organized itself uh, under a uh, holding company Alphabet and split off its um, uh, its uh, traditional businesses. I mean, of course, all of its businesses are relatively young, um, but uh, it has some businesses, the the advertising related businesses, which are search and advertising businesses, which are uh, more established, uh, large, and have a relatively classical character. So, what it was able to do by reorganizing and separating the the very new businesses from the more established businesses is that it could employ. Uh, different approaches to strategy um, to different parts of his business, which is precisely uh, ambidexterity. Um, and then if we take a, take a more uh, long-established company, uh, Pepsi, uh, there's a fascinating interview we have in the book with the, uh, with the CEO that explains the importance of, um, of running and reinventing the company. Um, you know, according to her in the interview, she said, like, the biggest change in business in her career has been that, of course, one always needed to reinvent the business, but it's just that now we have to reinvent the business at the same time that we're running it. And that is, that sets up a contradiction, because how can you have people that are uh, exploiting a business at the same time uh, that they are uh, attacking it and, and reinventing it? <laughs> and um, she sees this as being absolutely critical. And her solution to that is to have what she calls run the business teams uh, working alongside reinvent the business teams. And the most important thing is that these teams are um, if you like, standing in contradiction to each other because extracting the last dollar out of the current business model is a fundamentally different way of thinking about things than uh, replacing the current business model with some superior one at some point uh, in the future. So that's one approach to ambidexterity, which is alive and well in a, in a long-established company. You know, yeah, you're right. 
there's two types of businesses out there. It's kind of like a mature business that they make their money by becoming more efficient and become overly bureaucratic. Whereas, and you have a young startup pivoting style company that doesn't really have a lot of rules in place because things are shifting so fast and it's almost like a tap dance routine you're doing. Do you think in a, in a, in a larger organization or, or a, a company that's moving towards a, a mature state in a, in a mature industry, by having a more pivoty uh, startup approach, it gives them a competitive advantage because they're going to discover stuff before anybody else. Yeah, I think that's a really critical question, actually. Um, this goes a little bit beyond the book, but some of our more recent research shows that um, the longer a company has been established and the, la- and the larger it becomes, the less likely it is to, be, um, to have a large proportion of its value coming from exploratory um, as opposed to exploitative activities. And um, so we call that... Um, uh, that aging phenomenon um, and what to do about it. We call that uh, rejuvenating the large established corporation. And um, and it's got a lot to do with how do you achieve ambidexterity? How do you maintain this tension between running and reinventing um, in, in large established companies? And we, we found, um, there's a whole chapter on amb- ambidexterity, and we found that there are really four ways of achieving this, not just one way. Um, so one way is um, separation. Um, so you you separate the, uh, the the entrepreneurial stuff, if you like, from the uh, uh, from the established stuff. Why? So that you give it uh, freedom to have a different a different model. Um, and if you like, that's the strategy of Google with its reorganization under Alphabet. Uh, the second philosophy is um, one that we call switching, uh, which is sometimes businesses grow up very very quickly, so they go from being pioneering to mature and then back again so quickly that you wouldn't want to lock that into permanent structural separation. So you actually have to have um, a a team that can modify its behavior over time. It can shuttle up and down this spectrum of ambidexterity. So that's the second approach. And we give the example of Corning, the the glass manufacturer, uh, the materials manufacturer as being an example of that. And then a third way, when things get really complicated, where you have lots of businesses all with a different character, each which require a different approach that may be changing over time, there is the approach of having an internal ecosystem, if you like, an internal marketplace, lots of small units all doing their own thing, and they negotiate with each other through an internal marketplace. There are not not a lot of examples of that, um, but a very good one is the um, world's largest white goods company that also features in the book as a case study called uh, Hire, the Chinese um, white goods manufacturer. And then lastly, um, you know, uh, people did want to hear about uh, um, the famous tech companies. So uh, we looked at Apple from this perspective. And you could ask the question, and many people have asked the question, you know, how could Apple, a company that had never made a, a, fo- a phone before, uh, defeat uh, and attain dominance in an industry where up against a 60% market share competitor in a high fixed cost technology uh, intensive, um, highly regulated uh, uh, business. Um, and of course, the answer is, uh, in a sense, they didn't. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's Apple's uh, multi-company uh, ecosystem, the shaping strategy again, um, that actually defeated um, d- defeated Nokia. So how did they source the different capabilities and perspectives required to do such an enormous thing in such a short space of time? Um, well, they did it by having an external uh, ecosystem. If you like, they, they outsourced the diversity of perspectives that they needed in, into a dynamic ecosystem. So that's four ways 
of attaining uh, ambidexterity. And I think we'll find that um, ambidexterity will become one of the, the hottest and most important issue f- issues for large established companies uh, in the year to, years to come as they try and uh, reinvent themselves um, while uh, continuing to satisfy Wall Street um, against this onslaught of um, macroeconomic unpredictability and uh, this very rapid and accelerating pace of technological progress that we see. Yeah, well, definitely we're in a slightly ridiculously fast um, business environment now, whereas back in the day, the good old days, you had 5, 10, 15 years to actually figure something out. And these days, you may have as little as 5, 10 months, or in some extreme cases, weeks to be able to turn stuff around. Do you think this is a sustainable way, or you just think it's a phase, and when companies realize this, we're just spinning our wheels too much, um, it's not going to work, or is it the future? It's interesting. Like um, since the beginning of time, you know, almost all business books have begined, begun with a first chapter that says the world is more important. Uh, sorry, more, um, more rapid moving, more complex than it's ever been before. Um, and uh, sometimes that was the case. Sometimes it's not the case. But that sentiment is always around in business. If you objectively measure uh, the pace of business and the unpredictability, predictability of business. It is objectively the case that since roughly the mid-80s, uh, we've seen an enormous um, increase in unpredictability and dynamism. In fact, we we measured the the speed of progression uh, through product life cycles and, and company life cycles for the entire U.S. economy, and we found that the number was 2.0, um, namely uh, businesses moving twice as fast as it was um, 30 years ago. Um, so that is that is a new facet of business. Now, is that going to last forever? You know, maybe not. Um, but the signs are that uh, the things that are driving that unpredictability are continuing to accelerate. So low oil, geopolitical shifts. You know, China's occupying, driving most of the growth, and uh, now it's slowing down, and emerging markets are slowing down, and financial market instability, and the fourth industrial revolution, and the continued progress of technology. It seems that. Um, you know, I would put my money on the, these pressures not abating anytime soon, which means that the the large established corporation needs to become considerably more nimble. So we could say essentially that what we're seeing is a is a transition from static strategy plans to the necessity of dynamic strategy, uh, which is adapting flexibly to, to different situations and using different approaches uh, in uh, in in different circumstances. And just to make one more comment. Um, Recently, there's been a little bit of um, questioning of whether things are really speeding up or slowing down because there's been some research that shows that actually decision-making in large corporates may have slowed down a little even compared to, say, 20 years ago. Um, uh, Actually, I think these are two sides of the same coin in the sense that um, the, uh, the, the combination of this incredible dynamism in the business environment with the inertia of very large companies produces this contradictory effect whereby the external environment is is extremely fast moving but the inertia of large corporations uh, may uh, actually um, result in uh, some things becoming more complicated and, and and slowing down but the imperative is to embrace the diversity to em- embrace the, uh, the the agility required to succeed in today's environment do you think the biggest challenge right now or maybe one of the big challenges for larger organizations um, is 
utilizing all the new tools that are out there, mostly analytical tools, the ability to find out what your uh, community or your target demographics is actually doing and saying, uh, that information is basically free now or very, very inexpensive compared to 20, 30 years ago where it could cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and wasn't as specific. So, you know, if you're running a department and you're trying to make that department as efficient as possible, should you be shifting some of your budget from traditional um, uh, platforms or, or traditional ways of doing it to, to the new uh, data-driven stuff, which is uh, basically becoming cheaper and cheaper to, to get to? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you're begging the, the, the bigger question of... Um, you know what is the the recipe for rejuvenation for yeah. large established corporations, and and I think it's um it's not one thing. It's a, it's a, it's a bunch of things. I think um uh, before you get to the data and the analytics, I think you have to address which which certainly is an important part of this. I I think you um you need to um, have your culture be one which is externally facing. Um, in relatively stable environments, corporations can be internally focused and mainly concerned with perfecting and making more efficient uh, their their recipe for success, their past recipe for su success. Um, I think few companies now have that luxury, so an externally facing culture, um, you know, embracing what I call change signals, which is the data on what is changing, what is hot. <clears throat> um, I think um, flexible capital allocation, uh, being able to um, uh, recycle resources from formerly established businesses uh, to to new ones. I think um, embracing experimentation uh, is 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 pretty critical because um, uh, increasingly we see that the uh, the 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 hopes for the new shoots of growth are you know far from slam dunks. They are fast moving targets with a certain degree of uncertainty associated with them. So we need uh, the the art of disciplined uh, experimentation. I think that um, shaping um, a shaping orientation is, is 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 part of this, which is companies can react passively to the change in their environments, or uh, like Apple with the creation of their multi-company uh, ecosystem, like the example of Novo Nordisk, the insulin uh, maker uh, that we quote as an example of market shaping in China. Uh, companies can use their scale um, productively. Uh, to actually proactively uh, shape business environments and ecosystems. And then we have ambient exterity that we already talked about, you know, embracing the art of the contradiction of running the business and reinventing the business. And then finally, all of that, I think, uh, demands um, a different approach to, uh, to leadership that we, uh, we also discuss in the final chapter of the book. So collectively, all of that, I think, is the rejuvenation agenda uh, for large established corporations facing all of this change in diversity. You mentioned the new industrial revolution number four, where I thought we were coming up on three, so obviously I've missed one. Um, what is the the upcoming industrial revolution, and why will it have ramifications? Um, yes, indeed, there's a bit of controversy around how many have we had and so on. But I was the the uh, the slogan for for the recent. Um, uh, World Economic Forum uh, gathering in Davos was the uh, the fourth industrial revolution. So I let's go with four for today. But <laughs> I, in 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 any sense, what people are talking about is um, the impact of um, uh, not only digitization and big data and analytics, but but artificial intelligence, uh, the intersection between uh, people and corporations and and algorithms uh, for. Uh, managing business uh, more, more more smartly. So we have um, 
uh, you know, a range of visions out there as to how this will play out, uh, whether it's the uh, dystopia of uh, mass unemployment or, you know, man versus machine, or whether it's the utopia of the, the synergy between man and machine. Um, I think the only thing that people are, uh, are, are agreed on is that it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the consequences um, are enormous. Now, um, I'm not a, uh, I'm not primarily a technologist, I'm a strategist. So my perspective on all of this would be um, that a technology is not a strategy, but, but a technology is important because technology can modify the strategic problem, the strategic situation we're changing. For, for example, it can drive the velocity, of, the velocity of change faster and faster. So it's something we have to take into consideration. It can also be part of the solution. Um, but the technology needs to be baked into the right strategies and behaviors. Um, so it's difficult enough, I think, to, um, for companies that are unfamiliar with these technologies to embrace them. Um, uh, but I think uh, actually it's insufficient. Um, unfortunately, we need to we need to bake uh, these technologies into um, into in, in, into powerful strategies. Do you think that the emergence of small manufacturing device three D printers and and uh, into the future with stuff that will be able to create a product in your own room, do you think that's going to be happening the next uh, ten or fifteen years, or do you think that's something that's going to be happening way way further into the future? Well, I think in the particular case of, um, of, of 3D printing and devolved manufacturing, I mean, uh, whether it is big or medium or small, um, in a sense, is is not the main question here. Um, it could be any of those things. Um, you know, signs are, um, it, it could be an, a, a transformative technology. Um, but technologies like that, digitally informed uh, devolve once that change the relationship between the consumer uh, and the company. Once that change the role of the factory. Once that place an extra prominence on uh, on information and just merely the fact of technology change. If it's not this, it will be something else. All of that means that companies really need to adapt. So I think in in a way the the question should we embrace 3D printing or not is a um, that may seem like a scary question, but that's a that's a simplification. It's uh, you know the question that I'm dealing with. Um, um, uh, which is, uh, if you like, a deeper interpretation of that is, do we need to change our approach to strategy and implementation? And um, uh, as you can, uh, you won't be surprised to hear my, my own perspective on that is, absolutely yes. <laughs> um, you know that 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 that's the uh, that's the unspoken revolution, which is the the insufficiency of the of the tools and approaches that we have for organizing and strategizing uh, in the large corporation. You know, that's fascinating. You, you really think that that um, strategy is kind of like the underdog right now, or it's just not used in a sophisticated way where people say, hey, let's have a strategy session. Let's put on our strategy hats. And it, it's not taken as seriously as it should. Um, and it's more, let's be creative. And then we'll think of a way to figure it out. Where does creativity fit into strategy? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm a strategist. All I've been doing for the last 26 years is is strategy. Um, but I have to say that um, business strategy um, is is facing a sort of paradox. Um, so on the one hand, we do have um, people saying, uh, "Look, you know, st strategy is less important than it was, and we don't have time to sit around making plans. It's all about execution, or it's all about technology." Um, so we do we do have that. At the same time, we have the fact that the world has never been more unpredictable in business terms. 
it matters in the sense that not everybody is winning. The gap uh, in profitability between the top quartile of profitable companies in the US and the bottom quartile uh, is now wider than it's ever been before. So we need strategy more than ever. Now, against that, it's not that we lack ideas. In fact, one of the motivations for writing the book is that there's been an enormous proliferation of frameworks to strategy. Um, we now uh, we now have uh, at least 150 different uh, frameworks for strategy that managers can resort to. And I think, frankly, they're confused. They don't really know which of these approaches to apply to which circumstances and which approaches are compatible with others. And so we wanted to address that dilemma and address that confusion uh, by basically uh, saying, um, if we just reduce this to the simplest possible terms, um, what approach to strategy do we need uh, in, in, in what environment? Um, hence the strategy palette. Um, now, coming to your question on uh, creativity, uh, where does creativity come into this? Um, well, what is not the case, I wish it were the case because it would be nice and simple, is that we need to ditch all of this old-fashioned analytical strategy and just all become more creative and innovative. Um, <laughs> not, not so simple. Um, we need, um, so let me go through the five styles again touching on this idea of, 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 uh, of innovation and, and creativity because it just depends upon the situation. One size does not fit all. So in the classical environments, if you're manufacturing cho chocolate, sure, there's some value to innovation, but there's a tremendous value to all of the classical disciplines of scale and efficiency and specialization and positioning. Um, so we don't all need to move to Silicon Valley and grow our hair long uh, for that type of strategy because it would it's not appropriate to the circumstances. Uh, if we think about the adaptive strategy, this is, this is all about experimentation. So this is all about trying things. It's about not over-intellectualizing, not over-analyzing. It's about empowering the organization to try things and then observing what works and what doesn't work. And then we have the visionary environment. The visionary environment deploys a different type of creativity. The visionary environment is all about seeing a possibility that others have not seen. Um, or seeing the possibility that others may have seen, but you know that they're not going to be able to uh, attack it very quickly because of their own inertia as large corporations and doing so with, uh, with great agility and great courage. So that's a different type of creativity. And then we have the, uh, the shaping environment. Shaping environment is about collective intelligence. It's about how do I mobilize the assets and talents and capabilities of others in pursuit of an enormous goal, such as you know Alibaba, um, uh, basically recreating not only e-commerce but commerce in general uh, in China. You know it couldn't have done that without uh, engaging and enlisting the uh, the energy and the activities of, of thousands of uh, of other companies. And then we have um, the renewal environment where. The last thing you need if you're facing a survival situation is an abundance of creativity. You need to focus on reducing resource consumption so that you survive, and then you need to pivot uh, to, um, to, to innovation and growth. So unfortunately, there is no simple formula that says, you know, let's all, we, we all need to be more creative in a certain type of way. It's, it's all about the situation. What about organizations that are, are like like brand new? They're they're startup mode. They're they're evolving on an hour hour to hour basis, let alone a a, a month or, or a yearly basis. Do you think they should be approaching it with the same uh, you know five strategy? Understand it like you know we're um, but doing a micro version of it. You know this week we're going to have this strategy, and then next month maybe we'll be shifting to that type of strategy. 
Um, to some extent, I mean, um, startups have the uh, tremendous advantage that they uh, they they have no choice uh, but to use their wits to succeed and to be very agile and adaptable as they um, as, as as they do so. Um, so they they are very keenly attuned to the risks and the the changes around them. But generally speaking, in the first case, they'll be using a visionary strategy. Um, you know, startups can't easily compete in uh, in established businesses um, against you know scale incumbents. Um, so they generally have to do something new. They have to create something new. So that's the that's the visionary strategy. Um, but the the book does have something to say to the smaller companies, and you'll find a bunch of uh, case studies in there with companies like Twenty uh, Three and Me, the genomic testing services company, for example, um, about a couple of things. Um, you know, one of them is the art, the difference between a delusion and a vision. I mean, clearly anybody can imagine that the world needs Proposition X, but how would you know? if you can't directly observe Proposition X, that in fact it's not a delusion. Um, so for example, we talk in the book about um, spotting, the art of spotting that special window when something has become reasonably certain, but large companies have not yet been able to uh, to mobilize around a, a, a particular a particular proposition. Um, so that's not guesswork. Um, if you like, that's um, that's judo on the inertia of large companies. So so that's one sort of message. The second sort of message is um, we actually have an interesting case study in the book where we look at both the foundational entrepreneurial stage of a certain company and its later maturation. So it's the company Quintiles, which is a contract research organization in the pharmaceutical industry. We interviewed the chairman and the founder about you know what was it like to ignore everybody's advice and to see what the world didn't see and to to start up quintiles and later we looked at how did you need to tradition transition to a more classical style of operation and professionalize the organization and put in place systems and so on um, so there is a change over time and then the third implication really is um, that Small and big, new and old, of course, intersect. Um, you know, large companies sometimes fund startups. Large companies buy startups. Large companies try to behave like startups. And we have something to say about how you should and shouldn't uh, go about that. So uh, the answer to your question is yes, absolutely. This this framework has a different set of implications for uh, for startup companies. We've been talking about the book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, How to Choose and Execute the Right Approach. We've had Martin Reeves on the line today. And I tell you, I am more excited about this book now that I've had a chance to chat with Martin than I was an hour and a half ago. So get the darn book. And I don't think it's just for CEOs. I think it's for anybody that wants to have a career in the future. You've got to understand what strategy is. You've got to practice these techniques. So when you do have the opportunity to make uh, some informed decisions or you have a budget to throw around, you will understand this stuff like the back of your hand. Martin, thanks for coming on the show. Fascinating discussion. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Bob. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week. Oh, 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 o